Hello, dreamers. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this bonus episode of California Dreaming. This is not a California case, but I have been meaning to try to bring a little bit of attention to this story for quite some time now. And you've likely heard about this story either on a podcast, maybe on TV or on YouTube or on social media. One of the main reasons you may have heard so much about this case is because the person who was at the center of the story, a young man named Donald Edward Fickey Jr., or DJ for short, his sister, Amanda Shirley, has been very active on social media in an attempt to bring about more attention to her brother's case, because it is essentially a closed investigation, when there are many, many, many people who believe that it was closed prematurely. I don't know if there is very much of an impact that we can have when it comes to getting the case reopened, but there is a petition circulating calling for the investigative agency in charge of this case, whether it be the Walker County Sheriff or the GBI, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, to reopen DJ's case. So as I mentioned, all of this happened in Georgia. Not exactly a state that has had the best reputation when it comes to law enforcement and investigation. As a matter of fact, I just read a scathing article in The Intercept about the GBI as the issue has come up again and again. And most recent case that has come out of Georgia to hit the national media, the shooting death of Ahmad Aubrey. And this is exactly what got me thinking about DJ all over again. Amanda is in our Facebook group, and she has been very open and transparent about her brother's case, and she has been at this for a long time in her attempts to bring attention to his story. I was originally going to try to plan a collaborative presentation with Justin over at Mysterious Circumstances, but I've been kind of on a wacky schedule, and I haven't been able to keep up with anything, and I really don't want to postpone DJ's story any longer. So, DJ was born in 1988. He was one of four children to Donald Sr. and Kathy Vicky, and he was their only son. And from all that I've heard, and I've listened to several podcasts multiple times about this story, and I just had a long conversation with Amanda tonight about him, the family were tight-knit growing up, and DJ kind of had the role as sort of like the prankster little brother. He was described, despite his fun-loving antics, as being the one who felt it was really important to take care of the people that you love and to be there. And when somebody stumbles, he'd be the one to help you up. I heard that said about him in a podcast. That was part of who he was. That was in his nature. He was a very loving young man, and he was very much loved. When DJ was 14, the patriarch of the family, Donald Sr., passed away. And it would not only deeply affect the family at the time, leaving their mother Kathy left to continue raising the family on her own, but it is my understanding that Donald's death deeply impacted DJ, having experienced a devastating loss at such a pivotal time in his life. But it would also be something that he would carry with him as he reached adulthood and eventually became a father himself. DJ's father's death marked a time when he lost some of his faith in God for taking his father away from him so young. 
and it would lead DJ down a path that he may not have otherwise gone. It may not have been much at first, maybe hanging with a different crowd of kids, picking up some seemingly innocuous habits at the time, such as smoking pot. But as the years passed, DJ's drug use would be on a steady incline. And throughout his teen years and into his adulthood, it was something that he struggled with. And I want to be clear that Amanda has always been very forthcoming and upfront and honest about it. Because to understand what happened to DJ, you have to understand where he was at in life. He had began a romantic relationship with a woman named Brandy when he was about 25 years old. It wasn't very long into their relationship that they became pregnant and she gave birth to their son in 2014. And then, in short order, DJ and Brandy got married, and then a year and a half after the birth of their son, they welcomed twin girls in the summer of 2015. So in under two years' time, DJ became a husband and a father of three. And it is a lot of change to happen so quickly. But from all that I've heard and all that I've come to find about DJ, he was ready and willing to embrace his role as a dad. It was things, it was as if things were coming full circle for him since he lost his own father 11 years earlier. That was now his role. It was now his turn to be the dad and to be the dad that he had missed out on so much. Dreamers, as I said earlier, Amanda has been transparent about the things that were going on in DJ's life leading up to the events of the early afternoon of October 3rd, 2016. She has been open about her brother's struggles with drug addiction, as well as his wife Brandy's. Substance abuse was a thing that plagued DJ as he became an adult. While we understand addiction can and does have a stronghold on people's lives, it really did not seem to fully take complete control over DJ's life until after he became involved with Brandy. Now, I'm not blaming Brandy for DJ's addiction, nor am I trying to insinuate that she is the reason his addiction became worse. But you know, the thing was that they both came into this relationship with some history of substance use and or abuse. They both brought that to the table. So the blending of their lives, when you have two people who are susceptible to addiction and you put them together, it can be a toxic combination where both of their problems tend to become worse. And please, I want to be clear, it is important to the Ficky family and to the story that we understand that through it all, DJ and Brandy's children were always safe and healthy and continue to be DJ's priority despite his battles with addiction and sobriety. Their three kids were eventually placed in the primary care of their grandmother, DJ's mom, Kathy, which is where they remain to this day. So please know that for the duration of this story, the children are with her, they are completely safe and shielded from everything that is going to transpire between DJ, Brandy, and the people that they are associated with. As you can imagine, DJ and Brandy were trying to navigate through their relationship, the loss of custody of their three young children and their battles with addiction that it was a breeding ground for a tremendous amount of fighting between them. The thing was, DJ was in a slightly better place than Brandy was when it came to a desire to clean up and work on getting off the drugs. 
And I know from personal experience, having been in a relationship with a drug addict for almost 10 years, that the desire to get sober is a lot easier said than done. It's a thing that gets cycled through. They fall off the wagon, they get high, they possibly even go on a binge for days, and then they crash and then they feel terrible. They feel guilty, they want to stop, and they do, maybe for a few days, possibly even for a few weeks. But the temptation always seems to come back around, or they're triggered by something, or just something happens that knocks them back off again. So the following timeline of events is what occurred that led up to the deterioration of DJ and Brandy's relationship and their attempts at sobriety. DJ and Brandy had gotten in some trouble. They were arrested in May of 2016, caught in possession of drugs. While DJ got out of jail about a month and a half before Brandy did in July of 2016, he had gone on to live with his mom, Kathy, and his kids. During this time while Brandy was in jail, he was sober and he was even trying to move on from his relationship with Brandy to look for something healthier, something more conducive to his sobriety. He was in an outpatient rehab program. He was doing well. And this lasted until the middle of August of 2016 when Brandy was finally released from jail. But then towards the end of the month, apparently Brandy was being sought for some outstanding warrant. They had come to Kathy's house looking for her. So in order to avoid going back to jail, Kathy drove DJ and Brandy to Brandy's aunt's house in Georgia. So now they're essentially on the run together. And over the course of the next week or so, nobody really heard from either of them. By September 9th, DJ and Brandy had been staying at a friend's house instead of her aunt's house. But the friend had told them that they really couldn't stay because too many people were coming and going from the home. So Brandy had apparently gone back to her aunt's house temporarily, though it isn't clear if DJ went with her or not. It was later discovered that Brandy did not get along with another person living at her aunt's house, and she was told that she was not welcome there. Now, before I move forward in this timeline, I need to explain a couple of things here. We're going to be introduced to a man named Mark. And Mark was, I, I don't know if I could say he's a friend, maybe just an acquaintance of DJ and Brandy's. He lived in a rural town called Flintstone located in the northwestern region in the state of Georgia. It is just south of the Tennessee border and about a 45-minute drive from where DJ's mom lived in northeastern Alabama. So Mark lived on this property in Flintstone, and it's a property owned by somebody everyone just called Old Man. They called the trailer on the property Old Man's Place. Aside from the trailer, there was like this camper or something parked on this land and this was apparently where mark was living there were also other various small structures and or vehicles around where others lived or crashed i can't say that i've ever seen anything like what's being described here as what's going on at old man's property but it does not sound like a very good living situation for anyone especially when I tell you that it had basically become a drug hangout of sorts, the place where people came to use and then crash. And I know that sounds really awful. And Mark, and Mark is not his real name, by the way, 
had become a serious issue between DJ and Brandy and their attempts at reconciliation and sobriety. I got the feeling that DJ had it in his mind that he knew exactly what he needed to do in order to get back on the wagon and stay on. And that is what he was fighting for as he was approaching the end of September of 2016 into early October. Because you see, Brandy wasn't quite on the same page as DJ when it came to working towards sobriety. At least, that's what I've come to understand. I don't want to say that her addiction was worse than DJ's, but there was something else, or I should say someone else, that was enabling and encouraging and supplying her habit. That someone was interfering with her relationship with DJ as well, by interfering with any desire that she may have had to get clean and to go home with him. And that someone was Mark. Mark wanted Brandy to be with him. And in order to make that happen, he used drugs to control her and to coerce her into staying. And this was the battle that DJ was facing. So now into the first week of September of 2016, both DJ and Brandy are having difficulties finding suitable places to stay. And ultimately, they would end up back at her aunt's house by the 9th. In order to earn some money to get a hotel room, Brandy and a friend went and donated some blood plasma. She had the money, but they had no ride to get to the hotel. So Brandy stayed at her aunt's again for another night, and DJ went to a property, old man's place. And by the 11th of September, DJ was able to get Brandy over to old man's place too, so they could stay there together. On September 14th, DJ began contacting family and friends. He had left a voicemail for his sister Amanda explaining what was going on with him and Brandy, and he also divulged that Brandy was involved with a man named Mark, who I just told you about a moment ago. DJ told Amanda that he was trying to find a place to go, and he wanted to let her know where he was, just in case. By September 18th, DJ was reaching out to some of his friends and family on Facebook looking for a place for him and Brandy to go and some place for them to stay. It was a very, very toxic situation there at Old Man's Property with Mark in the picture. DJ was never able to find any place for himself and Brandy to go, so they ended up extending their stay there at Old Man's Property. On September 24th, so Brandy has been on the run for nearly a month now, and DJ was very much dedicated to her, has gone along and then try and figure out what they were going to do next. So on the 24th, DJ had a friend named Misty, along with her daughter, come to Old Man's property and pick him up and take him to get some lunch. During this visit, DJ told Misty that Mark was trying to kill him. He said that Mark attacked him while he was getting out of the shower, that he put a knife to his throat and attacked him with a baseball bat, and DJ retaliated by striking Mark with a golf club, knocking out one of his teeth. Misty described seeing bruises on DJ's body, he also made mention of a bad mixture of drugs that he was given by Mark that caused him to be very sick. And along with that, DJ gave Misty this warning. If something were to happen to him, please have Mark and Brandy investigated. He was adamant that no matter what, he would not do himself any harm. After their conversation, Misty took him back to Old Man's property. On September 30th, DJ was dropped off at the home of a family friend, but nobody was there. So DJ walked to his aunt's house. He shared with her the same story that he had told Misty 
about being attacked by Mark while getting out of the shower, that the fight was over Brandy, and that Mark was trying to kill him. He also expressed his concern that Mark was going to try to harm him and somehow kidnap his children from his mom and run off with them and Brandy. DJ also told her about a conversation that he had with Brandy outside of Mark's camper about trying to get their lives back together, which included them moving back to Alabama to live with his mom and their children. This was apparently a conversation that Mark had overheard them having, which caused him to emerge from his camper brandishing a gun, which he put to Brandy's head, telling her that he would see her leaving in a body bag, if anything, and ordered her back into the camper. DJ expressed his fear of having any sort of confrontation with Mark as he did not want any harm to be done to Brandy. He was afraid that Mark would shoot her if he tried anything. DJ's aunt ended up dropping him off at a location later that day, but DJ ended up back at Old Man's property with Brandy and, of course, with Mark. And from what I understand, Brandy and DJ reconciled again that evening. The following day, on Monday, October 1st, 2016, DJ called his mom, Kathy, to check up on the children. His son had expressed his desire for a train for Christmas, at which point DJ asked his mom to not get that for him, that he wanted to buy it for his son. Kathy said that DJ sounded as though he was in good spirits. Remember, he and Brandy had patched things up. And I believe that he was actively working on trying to get himself and Brandy out of that toxic situation with Mark on that old man's property. Now, whatever happened between October 1st and October 3rd, it appeared as though things had deteriorated between DJ, Brandy, and Mark. What we do know is by the morning of Monday, October 3rd, DJ began sending messages to his mom asking for help. He asked if he and Brandy could come and stay with her but Kathy had to turn him down. She was already taking care of their three young children, and she had just been told by doctors that she was going to need to undergo surgery in order to have a pacemaker implanted, and that she could not subject herself to any more stress than she was already under. In DJ's text messages, he expressed fear for his life and asked his mom if she could make the drive to come and pick him up, but again, she said that she was unable to do that though I believe she told him that she had some other options for him. It would only be minutes after texting with his mom that DJ would end up dead of a gunshot wound to the face. Even if Kathy had agreed to help DJ and Brandy, even if she had been able to help him make other arrangements to get out of that situation, it would not have been in enough time to save him. Now, it needs to be said right here from the start of this. The investigation into DJ's death was grossly mishandled at just about every single level, every step of the way, from the 911 call until the medical examiner signed off on her findings on DJ's autopsy report. Absolutely nothing has gone right, which is why we are sitting here today still seeking to right all of these wrongs. And the most upsetting and frustrating aspect of all of this case is that it would only take one person to change one word on one piece of paper to shift the entire trajectory of DJ's case. And I will circle back to that a little bit later. 
Sometime around or after one in the afternoon of October 3rd, Walker County 911 received a call that a man had shot himself. That is what the caller said. And the caller was none other than Mark, the man that DJ had been feuding with for weeks, if not months, over Brandy. The man who had seemingly developed some sort of weird obsession over Brandy. Brandy, I don't know, it's hard to say exactly what she was thinking or feeling, but my takeaway from her actions is that she very much loved and cared for DJ and the family that she had with him, but she was kind of stuck on this addiction that Mark was able to feed. And dreamers, let's be clear, everything DJ did in the weeks leading up to the shooting, all of it was to try to save himself and to try to save Brandy. He did not have to follow her when she fled that warrant back at the end of August, but he did. He wanted to save her. He wanted to save her from jail and to save her from drugs and ultimately to save her from Mark too. I have no doubt that he loved that woman and she loved him. But the drugs, the drugs gripped her. And that's where Mark was able to apply his leverage and control. When Brandy and DJ fought, she ran straight to Mark and he supplied her with a place to land, a place to get drugs, all of it under the guise that he was the one who loved and cared for her. And she's on the drugs, so she isn't thinking rationally or understanding what Mark is doing and that it's so terrible and toxic and controlling. DJ knew it. And he did more than I think most people are even capable of. He put himself through so much to try and save her because he loved her. And he was so fiercely loyal. Most people would have run the other way. Maybe there are many who had wished he had. Perhaps many of us listening wished he had. He'd probably be alive, but we'd be driving ourselves mad over all of these what ifs. I've heard Amanda say it several times, and I hear her voice and her cute little southern accent saying that DJ was a good man. And I believe that to my very core, 1000% that DJ Ficky was a good man. He put everything on the line to not leave Brandy behind. And I hope, I hope that that brings the Fickies a small measure of comfort in knowing that they're able to someday tell that to his babies, that he wasn't just a good man. He was a great man who deeply loved and cared for them and their mother, and that he put all of them first, above all, even before himself. So the 911 call. Mark said on this call that DJ shot himself. But this would be only the first of several versions of the story that Mark would tell. But what I can say with almost 100% degree of certainty is that nobody who has examined this case believes for one minute that DJ Ficky shot himself in the face with a sawed-off shotgun, with the exception of one person, and that would be the medical examiner. Unfortunately, the most important person in the case, the one that needed to really consider all aspects of what happened that day, is the person who has officially ruled DJ's gunshot wound as being self-inflicted. Even the people who were in the room when DJ was shot Even Mark himself, who initially said on his 911 call that DJ shot himself, 
Even he has not said with any amount of consistency that DJ shot himself. Based on his various versions, the shooting was at the very least an accident. But even with that story, Mark has said numerous times that DJ's hands were not on the trigger area of the shotgun. His hands were, Mark's hands. DJ's hands were on the barrel. So that right there, in and of itself, makes this being self-inflicted absolutely impossible, if you even want to believe Mark in the first place. In order to have this have been a self-inflicted gunshot wound, DJ would have had to have been the one to pull the trigger, plain and simple. And everybody who was a witness to this has said his hand was on the barrel, not the trigger. Now, as I said, Mark called 911 and said that DJ had shot himself. The 911 operator tried to ask some follow-up questions, but after a while, Mark began to not respond to the questions. The whole thing was pretty chaotic, and in the background of the call, Brandy can be heard crying and screaming. Eventually, Mark hung up with 911. And we have had cases where we've talked about 911 callers hanging up, and it is generally speculated that the reason is, is because the callers are aware that they are being recorded and they want to avoid anything unintentional getting onto those recordings. Clearly, Brandy is hysterical in the background of this call. She was there in the room when the shooting took place. So it has been speculated that she may have been screaming things that Mark did not want picked up on the 911 recorded call. 911 called Mark back and Mark answered the call, but the 911 operator is quickly losing his patience with Mark because he is not responding to his questions. Brandy is still carrying on in the background and she may be trying to answer some of the operator's questions, but she is unable to calm down enough to really have any kind of focus on the 911 call. And after another minute or so, the call becomes disconnected again. 911 called back once again, but this time it was a different operator on the phone. It was a woman this time. And this is where things started to get really messed up at the scene. Now, Mark had already admitted at some point on the phone that he had handled the gun. He told the dispatcher that he picked it up to see what kind of gun it was. He said the gun was next to DJ on the love seat that he was sitting in and that he picked it up to look at it. So now he has established a plausible reason other than him having been the one to shoot DJ in the face for his DNA and fingerprints to be on the weapon. But when 911 called back for the third time or for the second time into the third call, it was during this call that the operator instructed Mark to handle the gun even more than he already had. She asked him where the gun was and he said that it was next to DJ in the love seat. But he did tell her that he had picked it up to see what kind of gun it was and then put it back in the chair with DJ. So next, she instructed Mark to go ahead and make sure that the gun is in a safe place. She wanted him to make sure that it was unloaded and set aside someplace where the first responders that would be arriving would be safe entering the scene and entering the property. It totally makes sense for the 911 operator to want to ensure the safety of the paramedics and the police when they arrive. But this was completely wrong. Totally wrong here. What should have been done was that everybody inside the home should have been instructed to come outside immediately and to not touch anything. Do not move anything. Do not touch anything. Just get out of the house and wait for police and paramedics outside. 
I also think it's important to point out that this gun belonged to Mark. It was his shotgun. He would not have needed to handle the gun in order to tell 911 what kind of gun it was. He also knew that this was a single shot shotgun, meaning that the gun held one round. When it was fired, then it needed to be reloaded with a new round. There was no danger of the gun being shot a second time after it was used to shoot DJ. The shot it held was spent. Now, the only reason that I could come up with as to why the operator instructed Mark to do this was because they were operating on the assumption that DJ had shot himself with the gun. I think that they already had it ingrained in their minds that this was a suicide at this point. So treating the scene as if it were a homicide wasn't even a consideration in the moment. And I don't know this to be a fact, but I can't help but think that perhaps when paramedics and police did arrive, what they did was took a look around the property and clearly it was an unhealthy, unkempt environment that maybe they jumped to a conclusion simply based on their first impressions of the conditions that DJ and all of these people were in. They were in terrible conditions. They're using drugs and somebody killed themselves. I otherwise cannot understand why the scene was not secured as if it were a potential crime scene until it was proven otherwise, but it wasn't. But that's not to say it wasn't without trying. When Kathy got word that DJ had been shot or that DJ was dead, she called Amanda. It was difficult for them to communicate from the onset because Kathy was hysterical. When she blurted out that DJ was dead, Amanda became hysterical. And then Kathy demanded that she be taken up to where DJ was killed. And Amanda attempted to tell her to not do that. But of course, this is her baby boy. She's got to get there, right? So Amanda's husband drove the both of them to old man's property over in Flintstone. On the way there, Kathy received a call from Dwayne Wilson, who identified himself as the coroner. She immediately told him right away, DJ did not kill himself and that she had text messages from him on her phone where he was expressing his fears for his life and attempting to get help to get out of there. Now, at this point, Dwayne Wilson begins to tell Kathy that they knew it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound because the witnesses there at the scene reported that they saw him shoot himself. But he did say that DJ would be sent over to be autopsied, which, of course, Probably Amanda and Kathy thought, oh, good, we're going to figure this out and it won't be a problem. Yeah, right. Now, why were they so quick to believe that whoever was saying this? I believe it was Mark telling everybody that DJ had shot himself. But there were also other couple witnesses there who saw this whole thing. A person that we'll call Fatboy and his girlfriend. Their stories have been inconsistent from the start. But in the time that since this happened... I do feel as though Fatboy has, for the most part, straightened out his story. Because in the beginning, when all of this took place, I believe that he was in fear for his own safety and the safety of his girlfriend. But he was also using drugs at the time. So what his story was at the onset was a story he told out of fear and intimidation. And it was Mark who he was afraid of. And I believe that he was afraid of Mark because he saw Mark shoot DJ. Whether it was an intentional shooting or not, or if Mark had been brandishing the shotgun in order to intimidate DJ and it went off, perhaps the two men struggled over the gun. I believe Fatboy went along with Mark's version out of fear. 
that he just shot DJ, who's to say that he won't shoot him too? When DJ's mom, Kathy, got to the scene, everyone was getting ready to leave. Now, I don't know how much or how little Kathy and Amanda were standing there trying to take all of this in. And maybe they didn't know, or maybe they could not have even fathomed what was to come. But for them to be clearing out a potential crime scene that quickly seemed a little premature. So it has me continuing to believe that they were operating under the assumption that DJ had shot himself. And with that, they have taken Mark's word for it. And Kathy was told so, that witnesses saw DJ shoot himself. And that is the direction the scene was handled. And even if anyone, if the detective on the case later began having doubts that this was a suicide, there seems to be no going back. The evidence was tampered with. Not only was the scene not processed at all, it was never secured. Nothing was documented. And what's more, before everyone had left, Mark asked the detective if he could clean up. And he said, go ahead, clean up. The room where DJ died was never sealed off. It was never examined and documented by detectives or crime scene investigators. Once they were given a go-ahead to clean up, that's exactly what Mark and Fatboy did. They cleaned up. And they burned the love seat that DJ was sitting on when he was shot. So any chance of taking another look at that piece of evidence for blood spatter and gunshot evidence and angle and trajectory and residue and all the normal things that we see at a crime scene when somebody is shot inside a structure or near a piece of furniture, all of that was gone, up in smoke. Bullet pathways are documented, angles are noted. There are a couple of things that police do know for a fact when it comes to the scene. One is that DJ was shot in the left side of his face, but he was right-handed. Another is the angle of the bullet that entered DJ's face was in a downward direction, meaning the shotgun was held up above where he was sitting and pointed downward. Both of those things are indicative of DJ having been shot in the face by somebody else. And as I've mentioned, Mark has said on the 911 call that DJ shot himself, but when first responders arrived, they found Mark and Brandy outside. He had left the gun on a shelf inside the trailer, and he had the shell casing in his hand. So when officers began questioning Mark again at the scene, this is when his story began to change. He said that he had gone into the trailer around 12 p.m. in order to take a shower. Remember, he had a camper on the property that he lived on that obviously didn't have a shower. It's just a small camper. But when he tried to use the bathroom, Brandy was in there. DJ was in the trailer, too. And he asked Mark if he could use his cell phone, to which Mark agreed. At that point, Mark said he went into a different room in another part of the trailer. And it was during that time that he heard a gunshot. He quickly came back to where DJ had been sitting using his phone to find that DJ had shot himself with the sawed-off shotgun. That's when he dialed 911 to get DJ some help. Now, as you can see, this story is vastly different than the one that he said on the 911 call. He said in the very first 911 call that he made that DJ had shot himself, that he tried to get the gun, and it went off. He clearly says that in the first call. And right away, dreamers, 
oh my gosh, this right away should have been a big, huge red flag for the people that Mark is talking to. He said in a 911 call that he tried to get the gun away from him and it went off. But when first responders asked him what happened, he said he heard the gunshot from another room, effectively removing himself from the room and the vicinity of the shooting. Another inconsistency in Mark's story is that he first told police that the only people in the trailer at the time of the shooting was himself, DJ, and Brandy, and that he was in a back room, that Brandy was in a bathroom, and nobody saw what happened to DJ. This was not true, as later on it would come out that Fatboy and his girlfriend were in the trailer when the shooting happened as well. Though, like I said, their stories were inconsistent from the beginning, but as we go along, you will see that all of their stories start to begin to merge into some semblance of what might have actually happened. So as Mark was talking to police when they initially arrived, Brandy was still really out of sorts and didn't have anything that she could say or add at the moment. Mark did all of the talking. She did not add to what he was saying, not at that time. Now remember, Kathy is going to come up with those text messages that she'd been receiving from DJ, trying to find a way out of that trailer, trying to save himself and Brandy. He'd even said so, I'm going to die here if I don't get out. So essentially, Mark is attempting to try to convince police that DJ went from trying to leave to committing suicide in just a matter of minutes. Now, Mark was asked if he would voluntarily allow his hands to be tested for gunshot residue. And he said that he would, but he mentioned that he had been shooting the day before, so he might test positive. They said that if he shot guns the day before, it wouldn't show up. That it doesn't last more than a few hours on a person's hands. So now, if Mark is to stay with the version of the story that he had just told, that he was in another room when the gun went off, now he was not going to be able to account for the gunshot residue that was surely going to be found on his hands and test positive. He placed himself outside the room, so he should not be having any of this residue on his hands, theoretically. But he knows his hands are covered in GSR, so what he did in that moment was he reverted back to his 911 call version of what happened. That he saw a DJ with the shotgun pointed to his face, that he attempted to get the gun away from him and it went off. And with that, Mark would be able to account for any gunshot residue that they would find on him. So at this point, we should be all like, okay, we need to get the CSI people out here right now. Let's cordon off the scene. Let's get the crime scene tape. Let's get every person at the scene into custody, separate them all, haul their asses down to the station for some individual questioning. All the while that's going on, do all the forensics and evidence collecting from all the witnesses and from DJ's body. Collect and bag everything and treat this as a crime until we know different. But like I said, that did not happen. DJ's death was treated as a suicide from the onset. And by the way, the medical examiner did not test DJ's hands for gunshot residue. She's only required to do so if the police ask for it, and they didn't. Now, everyone was getting ready to go to leave the scene, and you have to understand that Kathy and Amanda are shell-shocked. They are devastated and upset, and they're not sure what happened to DJ, but what they are certain of is that DJ did not shoot himself. But as they were getting ready to leave, 
Brandy had come over to their vehicle and she got inside. She wanted to go with them. But Amanda's husband told her that she was not welcome to go with them. They were really distraught. They didn't know what had actually gone on. And they didn't know what Brandy's role in this whole thing was. So they told her no. She got out of the car and stayed behind with Mark, that boy, and his girlfriend. She would later say that for that entire night into the next morning, following DJ's death, that Mark did not allow her to leave his camper or talk on the phone. She also said that she was threatened and that her children were threatened, and if she tried to go and tell police the truth about what happened to DJ. This was a huge, huge failure on the part of the police. All of these people should have been brought into the station for questioning. They should have been separated and talked to individually and on the record. Brandy had not been able to say anything, whether it was because she was too distraught or because Mark was right there. But it wasn't Amanda and Kathy's responsibility to deal with Brandy in the aftermath of this. It should have been the police. Looking back, knowing what we all know now, would they have dealt with Brandy a little bit differently in that moment? Of course they would have, but they didn't know. Brandy could have been the one who shot DJ for all Kathy and Amanda knew. But Brandy ended up staying in that trailer, that very same trailer where DJ had died, with the man who was most likely the one who shot him. The same day as DJ's death, Amanda attempted to contact coroner Dwayne Wilson, but was unable to get a hold of him. The following day, on October 4th, Brandy's aunt was made aware of what happened and made her way over to Old Man's property to get Brandy, and Brandy ended up leaving with Amanda's aunt. It was on that drive that Brandy told her what had happened, her version of what had happened. Brandy's aunt contacted Kathy and told her that Brandy wanted to speak to the detectives. The next morning, the Fickies contacted the detectives and told them that Brandy had a statement that she wanted to make, and they were going to take her down there. On the way, Brandy also gave Amanda a list of people who were present in the trailer when DJ was shot, but they left the scene before law enforcement arrived, but they came back once law enforcement was there and pretended like they had just gotten there too. Brandy's version of what happened was this. She was in the bathroom, fixing her hair and makeup. She was talking to DJ, who was sort of pacing back and forth between where she was in the bathroom and the love seat where he was ultimately shot. He was trying to talk her into going back to Alabama with him, but she was telling DJ that she didn't want to go. She knew he was having trouble finding them a place to stay and that they would be pretty much couch surfing if they went back, if they were even that lucky, and she didn't want that. So this sort of led to an argument between them. And it was about this time that DJ began texting messages from Mark's phone to his mom, asking her if they could come there, if she could come and get them. But mom was telling him, no, that she couldn't. So this was further exasperating the situation between Brandy and DJ. Brandy eventually came out of the bathroom and continued this discussion or this argument that they were having. At this point, DJ was becoming desperate, trying to find a way for them to get out of there. It was about this time that Brandy saw Mark emerge from a room that was adjacent to where she and DJ had been sitting and talking or discussing going to Alabama. When he came into the room, Brandy saw him carrying the shotgun in his hand. 
He is the one who introduced the gun into the room, and he is the one who owns the gun. Mark began yelling at DJ, and as his eyes were cast downward looking at the phone, sending those text messages to his mom and to his friends, he suddenly looked up when Mark came into the room yelling and saw that he had the gun. Brandy said DJ put his arm up in a motion consistent with him attempting to defend or deflect what was coming. And in that moment, Mark fired the shotgun one time into DJ's face. She said that she was unable to say anything to police when they got there because Mark would never allow her to leave his presence. And police made no attempt to speak to her privately and away from him, which is just one of the things, one of the many things that police messed up early on in this investigation. They should have separated these people and spoken to them individually, but they didn't. Brandy was in a tremendous amount of fear, and she was hysterical. Police were not getting this information from her until two days after DJ's death. Now, the big, huge problem with this is DJ's body had been sent over for an autopsy under the assumption that his death was a suicide. Nobody thought of contacting the medical examiner to fill her in on the investigation. I mean, I can only assume that they are trusting the doctor to interpret what she finds in her examination of DJ's body accurately. She's the one with all the medical degrees. She's the one who has all the education. They're depending on her to know the story that his body should be telling. But she is going to work based on what she's told, not what his body is telling her. And as far as she knows up to this point, DJ's death has been treated as a suicide. I'm not going to tiptoe around this anymore. I do not believe DJ killed himself with a shotgun. And nobody who has really taken a deep dive into the story believes it either. And I don't believe the story that this was an accidental shooting as the men struggled over the gun. And there is another version that Mark would give police down at the police station in an interview where investigators are attempting to clear up exactly what it is that Mark said happened. And I'll get into that version in a moment. But let's go back a minute and let's talk about why this all happened. If what Brandy is saying is the most accurate version of what happened, I don't think she has any reason to be untruthful about it at this point especially when she is a safe distance away from Mark. We have to ask ourselves, why would Mark storm into a room with a loaded shotgun, point it straight at DJ's face, and pull the trigger? Let's not forget that this action is consistent with Mark's previous behaviors. He has pulled a shotgun on DJ and Brandy both when he would overhear the two of them discussing working through their relationship and their addiction together when they would talk about leaving old man's property, going back to Alabama, and trying to get their lives straightened out. Mark inserted himself into the middle of these conversations with his gun and threatened harm to both of them. So on this particular day throughout the morning, we know that DJ was desperately trying to find a way for himself and Brandy to get out of there, and DJ was refusing to leave her behind. As for Mark... I don't know if he was in love with Brandy or if he was obsessed over her. Whatever his feelings were for her, he was doing everything that he could to make sure that she did not go back with DJ, even going so far as to threatening both of their lives. It is clear that DJ was not going to leave Flintstone without her. 
and it looked as though it was all about to happen on that day. It looked as though they were going to patch things up and make their way out of there. The conversation or the fighting or whatever was happening between them had been going on the entire morning. And I think Mark could sense that DJ was getting to Brandy. Maybe she was on the verge of caving in. And there's DJ using Mark's own phone to message anybody that he could think of to try and help him. Mark had to put a stop to it or else Brandy was going to leave. DJ had much more of what was good and right for Brandy. He loved her. They had their three beautiful babies together, Jack, Peyton, and Paisley. They're married. DJ very much wanted them both to get clean off of drugs. The only thing Mark had was drugs, fear, intimidation, and this crappy living situation that he was in. But it was a living situation nonetheless that Brandy could rely on. I think Mark had had enough. He came into the room. He pointed a loaded shotgun at DJ like he had done before. But this time, he pulled the trigger. Is that what Mark ultimately wanted? Did he want to blow DJ away like that? Fatboy would say sometime later on in a conversation with Amanda that he doesn't think that Mark did it intentionally. That this was more of an accident than anything else. That Mark is not the type of person who would do something like this. There is much to be said for intent. The law takes that into consideration. Moments of passion happen. Things take place in a heated argument. Emotions take over. People do things they normally wouldn't do. It's totally a thing. Under some circumstances, I would be open to that having been a possibility in the moment that DJ was shot. There was so much drama between these three people. We're talking day after day and week after week of this back and forth in this love triangle, so to speak. And Mark, just on this day, had had enough and snapped. He got mad. He lost it. He brought a loaded weapon into an extremely volatile situation. I get it. We all get it. But that's not even what's happening here. And I'll come back to that a little bit later. Because for me, in this whole entire situation, you just don't bring a loaded gun to a fight like this unless you intend to use it. Period. So... Amanda had been attempting to get in touch with the coroner, like I had been saying, Dwayne Wilson, and it's not happening. She can't get through. His voicemails are full. It's all of this nonsense. They're not communicating with her. And to this day, she still gets the door slammed on her face every single time she tries to talk to anybody that has anything to do with this case in the state of Georgia. So on October 5th, Amanda called the GBI to try and find out how long DJ's autopsy would take. And it was at this time that she was told his body had already been released to the funeral home. But she didn't know where he was. According to DJ's autopsy report, the examination of his body was conducted that morning, the 5th, a little after 8 in the morning. I don't know exactly how long the entire autopsy took, but the report itself was only three pages long, and it didn't even include like the drawing of the body. We usually see in autopsies indicating where the locations of the wounds on the body of the decedent are. 
It seemed just really kind of minimal and basic to me. The autopsy was conducted by JBI Associate Medical Examiner, Dr. Natasha Grandi. According to the GBI website, Dr. Grandi completed her undergraduate and medical school by way of combined BS and MD program at Youngstown State University and Northeast Ohio Medical University in 2010. She had finished her pathology residency at the University of Maryland in 2014. She stayed in Baltimore to finish her forensic pathology fellowship at the Maryland Chief Medical Examiner's Office in 2015. She then joined the GBI in 2015 as an associate medical examiner. So when DJ's body was sent to her for an autopsy, she had been an associate medical examiner for less than a year. Now, just to compare to the other medical examiners with the GBI, the chief medical examiner earned his doctorate in 1998 and joined the GBI in 2006. The deputy chief Emmy earned her medical degree in 1985 and joined the GBI in 2001. The director of pediatric pathology earned her doctorate in 1995 and joined the GBI in 2002. Another associate Emmy earned his doctorate in 1993 and joined the GBI in 1999. Our regional medical examiner earned his doctorate in 1970 and joined the GBI in 2007. And yet another one earned her doctorate in 1994 and joined the GBI in 2000. Another associate Emmy earned his doctorate in 2000 and joined the GBI in 2008. Associate Medical Examiner and Director of Educational Programs earned her doctorate in 2004 and joined the GBI in 2009. I mean, there's a handful more, but what I'm getting at here is DJ's body was autopsied by one of the least experienced medical examiners in the state of Georgia. And the reason why I'm picking on her experience is because I listened to a phone conversation that she had with the private investigator that Amanda would eventually go on to hire in this case, a gentleman by the name of Eric Eccles. He had gone through so much of the evidence and witness statements, and there is nothing that anybody has said this entire time, not Mark, not Brandy, not Fatboy, nothing from anybody that indicated that DJ had committed suicide. Even Mark himself, who was the one who initially put it out there that DJ had shot himself, in his videotape statement to investigators, he clearly said that the gun, when it went off, was when he and DJ were struggling for control over it. I'll talk about this videotape statement in a moment. It's just yet another version of his ever-evolving stories in this case. But back to this phone conversation that Eric Eccles had with Dr. Grandi. He called her to get some information regarding DJ's autopsy, specifically the toxicology report, which did not seem to be listed in the original three pages of the autopsy. Okay, so you guys, this doctor, I'm sorry, but she sounds as inexperienced as she appeared on paper at the time of DJ's death. She had been with the GBI for less than a year. I don't know how many autopsies Dr. Grandi had been in charge of at that point, I don't know how many gunshot wounds that she's ever examined. I don't know how many suicides that she's ever looked at. But I do know it's a hell of a lot more than I've ever seen. But that's the thing. We are the laypersons, and we depend on people in her position to know what they're doing and to know what they're looking for. She ruled DJ's death a suicide. Despite witness statements to the contrary, she made her ruling 
And with that, she effectively shut down the criminal investigation into DJ's death. So in terms of the private investigator and the family's efforts from this point forward, the key to this entire thing is getting Dr. Grandi to change her ruling from suicide to, at the very least, undetermined. So in the days following DJ's death, information was coming out that it was Mark who shot DJ in the face. Brandy has since gone on to tell police in a statement both in person and in writing that DJ did not shoot himself. Police seem to be following the evidence. They seem to want to get to the bottom of this. And they appear to think that they're looking at some kind of suspicious death here. But by the morning of October 5th, when Dr. Grandi made her ruling, Nobody had contacted her to tell her that they were getting new information that DJ may not have shot himself. She finished the autopsy, she signed it off, and despite whatever was going on with the investigation, she has refused to change her determination and has been clear that she has no intentions of ever doing so, no matter how many people say somebody else pulled the trigger on that gun. When Eric Eccles spoke to Dr. Grandi about the toxicology report, this call was recorded. She called Eccles back to tell him that she got the toxicology report back on DJ, and it showed that stimulants were present in his system, that there weren't any depressants, and because of this result, she was going to stick with the cause and manner of death she listed in the autopsy. Now, Make sure you're taking this all in, you guys, and get what this woman is saying here, okay? It's almost a joke how ridiculous this woman is. And Eccles was on the phone with her, and he was like, okay, let me make sure I understand. The toxicology report shows that the drugs in his system does not indicate that this was a homicide, so you're sticking with suicide, And you can tell in this call, he is not buying what she is saying here. And Dr. Grande answered by saying, it shows a stimulant that's present. And she's stumbling over her own words here. So clearly she isn't even buying what she's saying here, but whatever. So there's a stimulant present. And based on that information, there is not anything that would have appeared to have rendered DJ unable to defend himself. And it appears most consistent with a suicide. And Eric Eccles is like, huh, even after all the other evidence, and she said yes. And again, he's like, huh. And then he chuckles a little bit, and he's like, okay. And then he says, well, was there a firearm residue test done on Mr. Ficky before he was cremated? Because he did not see that in her report. She told him that it is not routinely performed unless it's requested by police. She checked around in her report and said no, she did not perform a firearm residue collection. It was not requested and it is not routine. So Eccles asked, so we really don't know if he had the firearm in his hand and if he shot the gun if there was no residue. And again, Dr. Grandi, stumbling over herself, said, well, That gets into the validity of gunshot residue, which I believe you should probably speak to a firearms expert about. And he said that he was doing that. So he circled back to the drugs again and asked Dr. Grandi, it was a stimulant, what drug was found that was a stimulant? And she said that he had methamphetamines. And Eccles said again, okay. 
I'm just trying to make sure I understand what you're saying here, that the stimulant having been meth in his system would not have prevented from defending himself. And she answered, it's a stimulant, so he would have been active. And Echo said, okay, so he has a stimulant and he grabs the barrel of the gun. Wouldn't that be active? And she answered, remember, this was intraoral. The barrel was inside the mouth with the mouth closed. And dreamers, this is where it hit me. The medical examiner looked at DJ's wounds and came to the determination that the barrel was inside his mouth and that his mouth was closed. And because there was no indication, at least to her, that DJ had attempted to defend himself against this gun being inside his mouth, that he must have been the one that was holding the gun in his mouth as he pulled the trigger. And that there finally made me understand why Dr. Grandi was so convinced beyond everything else that everybody else was saying. All the evidence that DJ was attempting to save his life and get out of there. Why she continues to this day to insist that it was a suicide because of the placement of the shotgun inside his mouth. I'm sorry, but this is where this doctor's inexperience comes into play for me. First of all, nobody is saying that DJ shot himself. Everybody has a different story, but nobody has said, not even Mark himself, that DJ sat on that sofa, inserted that shotgun into his mouth and pulled the trigger. Nobody. Dr. Grande has come to that conclusion based on her observations of the wound to his face, to his mouth, to his tongue, etc. How many intraoral shotgun blasts has this woman ever seen firsthand? I would like to know. I know I haven't seen any. I know that a lot of people connected to this case have seen the pictures of the wounds and nobody believes it's consistent with the gun having been in his mouth. I haven't looked at them personally. Neither has Amanda and neither one of us intends to. But there have been people who have looked at it and it looks as though the gun was not in his mouth as it blew off sort of the left side of his face. And if it was in his mouth, there would have been a lot more damage to his entire face, not just one side. But anyway, I I can't look at the pictures. Um, I talked to Amanda about it a few days ago, and she's even had to have forced herself to stop herself from looking at them. And I, um, I can't do it. So I wouldn't even know what a shotgun blast to the face looks like if it was inside the mouth or outside the mouth. It really isn't going to do me any good to have to subject myself to having to see something like that. But I understand that part of Amanda that just wants to know. But so far, she's managed to hold off. So I'm grateful for that because I really don't want her to have to see that either. But anyway, and when we're talking about an inner oral shotgun blast to the face, how can we be so sure considering all the damage that the shotgun can do when we come to that conclusion with 100% certainty especially when we don't have all that much experience. I just feel like the amount of damage to DJ's face, the nature of the wound, the weapon that was used, and the inexperience of the ME all resulted in a conclusion that was reached with more certainty than it should have been. Do I want to look at self-inflicted gunshot wounds versus 
a gunshot wound caused by someone else holding a hand and trying to compare and contrast? No, I don't, which is one of the many reasons why I'm not a forensic pathologist. But we do know that there are forensic pathologists, even renowned ones out there, who know that there are times when there are some things that you just can't rule out. So you have to leave it open for interpretation. You have to, otherwise you end up with a situation like this, where there's this potential homicide that's going unpunished because somebody ruled it a suicide. And these newish doctors, I know they don't want to be second-guessed. They don't want to second-guess each other. They don't want to second-guess themselves. It just doesn't look good if you have to backpedal on something so serious. I get that. But damn, this is so important. This is the difference between a potential killer paying for his crimes or going free. Dr. Grande has refused to take any other evidence into consideration. We've heard medical examiners say, we look at everything going on in and around this event. What was going on with DJ? What was he trying to do? Where was he headed? What was he saying to people? He was clearly trying to save himself and to save Brandy. Clearly, he wanted to do that. He just said he wanted to buy his son a really important Christmas gift in a couple months. He was trying, desperately trying. He didn't suddenly change his goddamn mind and decide to blow his brains out on the frickin' sofa in the middle of trying to get out of there. I'm sorry this is making me really upset. I got even more upset talking to Amanda about this. It also needs to be noted, and I may have already mentioned this, that the angle of the gun that was pointed at DJ's face is indicative of DJ having been in a sitting position and the gun having been aimed and pointed in a downward angle as if being held by somebody standing over him. The autopsy says, entrance, oral cavity, soot present, evidence of close range discharge of firearm, injury, oral cavity, skull, brain, exit, right side of head, recovered, Multiple gray metal buckshot pellets and white plastic wadding. Direction, front to back, left to right, and downward. The autopsy also said in the opinion that per the investigation that DJ was last heard expressing suicidal ideations. And we know that this is not true based on the text messages that he sent to his mom minutes before he was shot. Nowhere is he saying that he's going to kill himself. He was saying his life was in danger, though. I also want to point out in Mark's videotaped police statement where he's sort of acting out how the gun was being fought over. He has the gun pointed upwards and towards DJ's face, whereas the autopsy ruled that it was left to right, front to back and downward. So clearly this gun is being held over him. Like I said, I have not looked at the crime scene photos of DJ, but I do know a bit of information from private investigator Eccles, who has seen the photos, and he has gotten some opinions about the placement of the shotgun. Remember, Dr. Grande said that the gun was in DJ's mouth and his mouth was closed. But according to Eccles, from what he can see in the pictures, and many agree that it does not appear that the gun was inside his mouth. And the reasoning for that would be that there would be a significant amount of damage to his mouth, to his face, and to the back of his head if it was. 
He believes that the power of the shotgun blast, all of the expanding gases, and the power of the gun going off in his mouth would have completely destroyed everything inside his mouth, and that wasn't the condition that DJ was in after he was shot. It is my understanding from the photos that it appears that the damage done to his face was caused by the gun being held close to his mouth, within a few inches of his face. According to Eccles, the photo shows only half of DJ's mouth having been damaged by the shotgun blast, not his entire mouth. In addition to that, the wound to the back of DJ's head, the exit wound, was not as nearly as severe as it would have been if that barrel of that weapon firing a 12-gauge shotgun round from point-blank range was. And this was also a sawed-off shotgun, which makes the projectile even more lethal. Also, if DJ had the gun in his mouth, you know, I don't know a whole lot about guns or shotguns, but that 12-gauge buckshot shell would have had as many as a dozen, possibly 18 pellets contained within it, right? Maybe more? I don't know exactly how many pellets were inside the round that was fired into DJ's face. But when you look at DJ's autopsy report, it says that there were three pellet exit wounds and pellets removed from his brain. There were numerous pellets unaccounted for, which they all should have been if the barrel had been inserted into his mouth. The scene around DJ, the love seat, or any part of the structure around him were not examined for gunshot pellet damage. And then Mark was given the go-ahead to clean up the scene by the last officer that was there. And he subsequently burned the love seat that DJ was sitting in. I've gone over some of the various witness statements that were at the scene that they've given. But now that we've gone over the autopsy and the conclusion that this was a suicide, I want to review what the people who were actually there had to say and why it is even more incredulous that this medical examiner is unwilling to entertain the possibility that she might have interpreted DJ's wounds incorrectly. She's still more of an expert than any of us. There's no taking that away from her. Unless, of course, you're listening to this and you happen to be a forensic pathologist. I think she's making a bigger deal of it than it really needs to be. It wouldn't matter not one single bit in Dr. Grande's life if she were to alter her opinion from suicide to undetermined. It's not unheard of. Passage of time, hindsight, gaining experience, all of those things have an effect on how we see things differently than we did in the past. But for so many people involved in this, DJ's loved ones, his family, his children, his mom, his sisters, the change from suicide to undetermined is everything to them. Literally, their entire world hinges on it. Something so insignificant to the medical examiner. DJ's just another case, just another file, just another manner of death that really doesn't mean anything to her, but is so much more than that to the Fickies. If this were Dr. Grande's loved one, I wonder if she would treat the case with the same flippant disregard and indifference. I'd always been under the impression that the role of the forensic pathologist 
was to tell the story for those who no longer can't. And to do that, they don't just look at a dead body on a metal table in front of them. They look into their life. They look into their story. They don't just see DJ as a man with his face blown off. This is DJ, a loving husband, a father, a son, a brother, an uncle, a friend, a man who fought tirelessly to find his way to fight for his children and to not leave their mother behind to suffer. A man up until the moment he died was trying to save their lives. Where in that narrative is the story of a man who arrived at a place in so much despair and hopelessness that he would pick up a shotgun and shoot himself in the face minutes after begging his mom to come save him. And then, the medical examiner looks into the story after the fact. What happened after DJ was shot? Who was there? What did they do and what did they say? And that's where I want to go next. What is that story? Dr. Grande wasn't there, but there were people who were there that saw DJ Ficky die right before their eyes. Dr. Grande's medical degree simply should not trump what they say happened, and it is not her place to disregard them and their statements. There were three people in the room with DJ when he died. Mark, Brandy, and Fatboy. Let's start with Mark. The first thing he ever said was that there was a guy who shot himself. That's the absolute first thing that ever went on record in regards to what happened to DJ. In a chaotic 911 call, you have a guy who we will find out later on was the one who not only brought the gun into the room, but had his hands on it when it was fired, who made that initial statement. It's hard to believe that after three and a half years and all the investigation on the part of the Ficky family that to this day, that remains the official story. Unbelievable. So you've got Mark first saying a guy shot himself. And then you have him later on in the 911 call saying that he tried to get the gun away from him and it went off. We know from the investigation that Mark had a long-standing problem with DJ. The men were in an ongoing feud over Brandy. DJ was Mark's romantic rival, and it wasn't the first time that Mark had pulled a gun on DJ. And they had had physical altercations in the past. So I think we can be fairly certain when we say if DJ was threatening to kill himself, Mark would have been more than happy to allow it to happen. He wanted DJ out of there, and DJ wasn't leaving without Brandy. And Mark wasn't about to allow Brandy to leave. So these men were at this impasse for quite some time leading up to the shooting. It is not a huge leap for a situation like this to escalate to violence the way that it did. As a matter of fact, it's one of the few things in this case that actually makes sense. Killing over love and jealousy is one of the oldest motives out there. Then, when first responders arrived, Mark changes the story. He's now placing himself in another room when he heard a gunshot go off. He ran into the living room and found that DJ had shot himself. But then, after some runaround about the gunshot residue, he realized that he needed to account for the possibility that his hands were going to test positive for GSR, so he reverted back 
to his original story that they struggled over the gun, that DJ was threatening to kill himself, and in Mark's futile attempts to be a hero and stop him, the gun went off and DJ was shot in the face. Then sometime later, Mark was asked to come into the police station for an interview. As a detective wanted some clarity about what happened to DJ and how he was shot. And this whole thing was video and audio recorded, and I watched it several times. So Mark tells the investigator that he went into the room and DJ was sitting in the chair with the gun. So the investigator is telling Mark, look, I'm confused. I'm really trying to understand what's going on here. I have a shotgun. We don't have to do this, but I'm trying to understand. Can you show me what you're talking about here? Because I'm having a really hard time imagining how DJ was holding the gun. And Mark starts to try and describe how the gun was. And the investigator was like, look, let me grab my shotgun. It'll be unloaded. Can you just show me? And Mark agrees to do this recreation. The investigator comes back with a shotgun and asked Mark to show him how DJ was holding the gun, as if the investigator was DJ and Mark was being himself. Mark said that the gun was down in the chair, kind of tucked in the arm and in the cushion. He said that by the time he got close to where DJ was sitting, he was pulling the gun out of the chair. And the manner in which Mark is saying this happened, he is demonstrating the gun being pointed upwards towards the ceiling. And then he said that DJ put his thumb on the trigger and was trying to put the gun under his chin. So then Mark, just stunned at the possibility that DJ was about to shoot himself, is like, hey, man, what the hell? And he claims he came up and put both of his hands and grabbed the gun, attempting it to pull it away from DJ. And as he's pulling it back, DJ's trying to pull it towards his face. And he's like, man, you don't want to do this. Don't you don't want to kill yourself this way. And he's trying to save him from killing himself. This guy who we know cannot stand DJ is trying to convince everybody that he was trying to save his life. Okay, so Mark says he got the gun away from his face and he was trying to keep the barrel turned away from him. And Mark said at the time he didn't know that the hammer was pulled back. He said he had the barrel towards the wall, and when he yanked it like that and he demonstrated real quick, he tried to pull the gun by the trigger end of it, and it came loose from DJ's hand. So now at this point, Mark is indicating that he has control over the trigger end of the gun, and that DJ has his hands over the barrel end of it, trying to regain control by pulling it away from Mark. So at this point in the reenactment, DJ doesn't have either of his hands anywhere near the trigger end of the gun. Both of his hands, according to Mark, are on the barrel end. And then Mark said DJ moved one of his hands down by the trigger to try to get his hands off the gun. And while this is going on, Mark is saying to DJ, give me the gun, man. You don't want to do nothing like this, man. Because, you know, Mark is such a good friend of his. He's trying to talk DJ out of committing suicide here in this moment, right? And in that second... Mark's arm yanked one last time, and then boom, the gun went off. The investigator asked where Brandy was when all of this was happening, and Mark said that she was the one who yanked his arm that one last time the moment before the gun went off. And I'll talk about this arm yank in a moment. So in this recreation, the way that Mark is saying that the gun discharged and shot DJ in the face 
does not match up with what was found at autopsy. From his story, the gun was pointed up almost straight at the ceiling most of the struggle for control over it. And when it went off, the gun was still in an upward angle going from right to left. And this is the complete opposite of the autopsy findings. And as far as Brandy yanking on Mark's arm, let's pick that apart for a moment. If DJ has a gun pointed at his face and Mark is attempting to pull the gun away from DJ's hands, then why is Brandy yanking on Mark's arm? We don't know for sure if she was or not, but it's one of those details I think might have some truth to it because why else would Mark throw it in there? It was a detail that I believe was meant to further Mark's narrative about this being a life and death struggle over the gun. Adding Brandy's random yanking of his arm in the midst of that can only add to his claim that the gun discharged accidentally. And I'll just put it out there right now. I do think Brandy yanked on Mark's arm, but I believe she did that because Mark was in the middle of threatening DJ with the shotgun and Brandy was trying to stop him. If DJ was threatening to shoot himself and if DJ had the gun in his hand, I believe Brandy would have yanked on DJ's arm to stop him, not Mark. She yanked on the arm of the person that was the threat. Now, regardless of whether or not this version of Mark's story is true, it really doesn't matter because all the stories have changed because everything he needs to say about it has to be self-serving. But even if his story is taken into consideration, it still doesn't amount to this being a suicide. He never said that DJ put the gun in his mouth. He never said that DJ closed his mouth over the barrel of the gun. He never said that DJ sat in that chair with the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. But the medical examiner's takeaway from Mark's statement is the very first thing he ever said on 911. A guy shot himself. Everything else Dr. Grande has essentially made up. She's made up the whole entire story in her own head. And that's become the official story case closed. Another witness who was in the room when DJ was shot, or at least, at the very least, came into the room in the moments of the shooting or immediately following the shooting was Fatboy. He and his girlfriend, I believe, came to Old Man's property to buy and use drugs and they might have on occasion been sleeping in their car on the property. Fatboy is generally considered to be a friend of Mark's and Brandy's. He said he's only met DJ a handful of times, but he mostly knew Brandy to be involved with Mark. At the onset of this, when DJ was shot, Fatboy and his girlfriend actually left the scene. They came back shortly after law enforcement arrived and played it off as though they had just happened upon there. Now remember, this is a property where drug activity takes place. Drugs were sold and used there, and some of those who participate in those things did actually get taken into custody earlier in 2016. So police were aware of the property and the things that go on there. So when they did arrive after the 911 call was made regarding DJ having been shot, there was no sign of any drug-related activity anywhere, which you know would have likely gotten everyone in trouble. So I can't say for sure, but I think it is highly likely that Fatboy and his girlfriend panicked when DJ was shot, that everyone began clearing out all the drug paraphernalia as quickly as possible, 
that Fat Boy and his girlfriend packed everything up in their car and took off before 911 was dialed. They went wherever they went to get rid of the drug evidence, then eventually casually made their way back as if they just happened to arrive for the first time that day. We know later on that Fatboy would admit to being there and leaving and coming back and lying to police in the beginning. After a series of interviews with investigators, the Ficky family private investigator and Amanda herself, who went to the jail to visit Fatboy in person, that he has revealed what is believed to be mostly the truth, though it still feels very guarded and limited to the extent that he is trying to protect himself or Mark or both of themselves and possibly his girlfriend. Amanda, when I talked to her about Fatboy, she said that she thinks she believes most of what he says, but he's trying not to implicate himself and get himself in any more trouble. Mark is Fatboy's friend, so it is not beyond the realm of possibility that he does not want to get him in trouble either by saying anything incriminating. But it is also possible that Fatboy is being guarded out of fear, which he has also indicated, but it's been sort of a contradiction in and of itself, his reasoning that is. You see, Fatboy has said DJ did not shoot himself. He has said that Mark brought the gun into the situation. He has said that Mark was pissed off and frustrated with all of the bickering and back and forth that had been going on all morning between DJ and Brandy, and that he came into the room with a shotgun to try and intimidate DJ into shutting up, and that at some point the gun just went off. So whether or not Mark shot DJ by accident, or if he intended to shoot him, Fatboy has now made it clear that DJ Ficky did not shoot himself. He has said Mark was in control of the gun. The gun was in his possession. He was the one that pulled the trigger. And again, this means at the very, very least, this was not a suicide by any stretch of the imagination. Now, Fatboy has repeatedly said that he does not think Mark shot DJ on purpose. Now, for me at this point, it doesn't really matter whether or not Fatboy thinks this was an intentional act. Mark still brought a loaded gun into this room, pointed it, and fired it. You don't bring a loaded gun unless you're going to use it. You've said it once. We've said it a thousand times. Fatboy is saying that Mark is his friend. He doesn't believe that he's the kind of guy that will intentionally kill somebody like that. But in the same breath, Fatboy would also say that he said what he said out of fear for his life. So why would you be in fear for your life if you're convinced your good friend is not the type of guy who would intentionally shoot somebody like this? The truth is, Fatboy wouldn't be afraid if he truly believed that DJ was shot accidentally. Whatever the case, intentional or not, Fatboy has been emphatic. This was not a suicide. So now let's talk about the last person who was in the room at the time, Brandy. She was incapable of giving a reliable statement following DJ's shooting. She was hysterical and she was being guarded by Mark and she was unable to leave old man's property for about a day. When she was finally able to be picked up from there by her aunt, it was only then she was able to explain what she saw happened. DJ's mom and sister were contacted and told that Brandy needed to speak to detectives, but by the time Brandy was able to provide her official statement, DJ had already been autopsied and his death was ruled a suicide, 
and her statement was just going to be a wash. Brandy said Mark shot DJ in the face. She gave statements to detectives. She also gave it in writing about a year and a half later while in jail. Her written statement reads as follows. I, Brandy Leanne Fickey, on Wednesday, January 31st, 2018, was spoken to by Eric Eccles, who identified himself to me as a private investigator. This interview took place at the DeKalb County Jail in Fort Payne, Alabama. This statement is true, and no threats or promises have been made to me. On October 3rd, 2016, I was at Old Man's Trailer when Mark shot my husband. I was a witness, and this is what I saw. Me and DJ stayed over with Mark. We woke up and Mark offered us meth. We declined. We left him at his camper. I went to the trailer to get something to drink and to use the bathroom. I fixed DJ a drink and went into the bathroom. DJ came to check on me and we had a short conversation about his mom in Alabama. He went back into the living room. I finished my hair and went into the living room to join DJ. As I made my way, Fatboy shortly led behind me. When I got to the living room area, by the time my eyes met DJ's, Mark came out of the bedroom that was kind of behind DJ, angrily and violently from DJ's left side, holding a gun at a downward angle, yelling at DJ, you goddamn MF'er, and then shot him, DJ. I ran out of the house, scared for my life, screaming for help, hoping someone heard me. I went back in to see if DJ could be alive. I grabbed his hand, hoping he was still there. If called to testify, I will say the same. Signed, Brandy L. Fickey, 1-31-18. So, here we have another witness who was in the room who has unequivocally said that Mark shot DJ in the face. DJ was seated in the chair. Mark angrily and violently came out of the room brandishing a shotgun, shouted some expletives at DJ, and fired. And all the evidence, before and after the fact, support that this is what happened. So we have to sit here and ask ourselves, how then is the one person who this entire case hinges on, Dr. Grandi, come to a fallacious determination based on nothing more than a quote-unquote educated guess unwilling to look at the facts and real evidence that has been presented. I don't know what it's going to take for the GBI and Dr. Grande to roll back on the suicide ruling, but it definitely is feeling like a very huge mountain to climb. There are so many important things that seem to have gotten lost on Dr. Grande as she sits atop her medical degrees looking down on all of us, hair trying to knock some sense into her thick skull. Lost on her is the reason why she is called upon to interpret the story that DJ's body was trying to tell her. To make sure that a murderer doesn't go free. I can't, for the life of me, understand how this doctor sleeps at night, knowing that the likelihood that her determination in the death investigation into DJ Fickey is likely allowing for a murderer to be on the streets and remain unpunished for his crimes. As it stands, Mark, and remember that isn't his real name, is still out there. Dr. Grandi has all but dismissed everyone's statements as unreliable, as though I've read them all to you. She dismissed Fatboy's statements, she's dismissed Brandy's, 
and the reason given is because their judgment and reliability is clouded due to drug addiction. But I have to ask, why is Mark's statement considered to be valid when he's just as much of a drug addict as everyone else and he's a drug dealer? His word is taken as the most legitimate in this whole entire thing. It makes no sense. I asked Amanda what needed to be done to get this turned around, to reopen the investigation as a homicide. She's been fighting for more than three years to get an answer. As it stands, all members of law enforcement at all levels in Georgia refuse to speak to her or her private investigator at all anymore about this case. The likelihood of the medical examiner to change her ruling is pretty much non-existent, as it could possibly open themselves up to lawsuits. Amanda does have a civil case pending against Mark. Like everything else in this case, it too is moving at a snail's pace. But the hope is, if they can win a wrongful death suit against Mark, that this might compel the criminal case to be re-examined, though the likelihood of that is slim as well. Now the hope is for Amanda to continue in her fundraising efforts, to have second opinions given on the evidence in the case, to possibly hire another forensic pathologist to look at DJ's autopsy photos and make their own determination as to whether or not this was an intraoral self-inflicted gunshot wound. Amanda hopes to raise the money to have the shotgun tested for DNA and fingerprints, which it never was. Ultimately, the only way the district attorney is even going to consider moving forward on this case and pursue criminal charges is if the medical examiner changes her mind on this death being ruled a suicide. As long as that remains on his autopsy and death certificate, this case is essentially closed and a killer goes free. You can find Amanda Shirley in our Facebook group, but she is also all over social media. Her Facebook page is called Justice for DJ. She is on Twitter at Justice for DJ 88. She's on Instagram at Justice for DJ. She has a GoFundMe if you search Justice for DJ where she is raising money to help pay the private investigator who is essentially working for free. There is a change.org petition if you search for Justice for DJ is to help try to get the state of Georgia to open up a homicide investigation. They need 35,000 signatures. And as of this recording, there is 28,140. So all of these things I will share across social media. I want to thank Amanda Shirley for taking the time to talk to me a few nights ago. We talked at length about this case and she's struggling. It's hard. She's hanging in there. Fortunately, it seems like she has a good support system. Her family, her friends, her husband, her daughter, her mom, DJ's kids. And I even asked about Brandy and Brandy's hanging in there too. She's, she's all right. And there's been a lot of forgiveness and a lot of moving forward and trying to get past whatever animosity there may have been from the onset to try to work together to get justice for Donald DJ Ficky. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you all have a really wonderful week and I will 
be back soon with another regular episode for you guys. Take care and sweet dreams.